0: Hello, friends. Welcome to Nexus, a smart buildings technology podcast for smart humans. I'm your host, James Dice. If we haven't met before, I write a weekly newsletter on this same topic. It's also called Nexus. Each week, I share what I've learned, my opinions, and what I'm excited about in the quickly evolving world of intelligent buildings. Readers have called Nexus the best way to stay up to date on the future of this industry without all the marketing fluff. You can check it out and subscribe at nexus.substack.com or click the link in the show notes since starting the nexus newsletter many of you have reached out to me wanting to talk shop and we have after a few weeks of those wonderful conversations i realized i needed to record and share them with our growing community so here we are the nexus podcast is born this is our chance to explore and learn with the brightest in our industry together One more quick note before we get to this week's episode. I'm a researcher at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, otherwise known as NREL. All opinions expressed on this podcast belong solely to me or the guest. No resources from NREL are used to support Nexus. NREL does not endorse or support any aspect of Nexus. Episode 13 is a conversation with Deepinder Singh, CEO of 75F. I walked away from this conversation even more excited about 75F than I already was, as I've said before, 75F and Passive Logic are the only two companies I know of doing the blank sheet of paper approach to modernizing and improving the performance of building control systems. We unpack 75F's founding story, what makes them unique, and why they decided to create the whole stack rather than just an overlay. We talked about their over-the-air sequence upgrades, how they're similar to Teslas, and how they enable the new epidemic mode for minimizing the energy penalty that comes along with the increased ventilation recommended by the CDC and ASHRAE to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Finally, we talked about their software platform, what makes it unique, and their hardware layer, and what makes it unique. This episode of the podcast is directly funded by listeners like you who have joined the Nexus Pro membership community. You can find info on how to join and support the podcast at nexus.substack.com. You'll also find the show notes there, which has links to Deep's LinkedIn page. Oh, and by the way, if you take a look at your podcast feed and you're missing episode 10 and 12, that's because those episodes are exclusive to members of Nexus Pro. Sign up for a pro membership to get your personal podcast feed with access to all the episodes. Without further ado, please enjoy Nexus Podcast episode 13 so hello deep welcome to the nexus podcast uh can you go ahead and introduce yourself thanks for having me over james yeah so i'm deep i'm the ceo of 75f all right and, and what is 75f for those that that don't know yeah Really
1: speaking we think of ourselves as building automation in a box right so what we have done is instead of trying to go and attack a very small layer in terms of putting in a software layer or just making smarter sensors Uh, we decided to actually do the whole stack so we actually start we have our own sensors we have our own controllers we make our own gateway and aggregation units and uh, on top of it we put our own software which is both in the building as well as in the cloud so that includes things like remote access and portals but also the machine learning stacks that we've created so all of that is really part of 75f so it's it's a complete building intelligence solution is how we call it we don't just call it building automation but we make it simple enough that it works out of the box. So it really doesn't require a huge amount of system integration, actually requires zero amount of system integration.
0: Cool, cool. Yeah, I'm super excited to dig into a lot of this. I've been waiting to interview you for a while. So why don't we start with like the founding story of the company? So, I mean, I've talked a lot about how I I think the building automation industry is broken. So I don't want to throw that story out there. I want you to tell me how it actually came about. So how was it born?
1: Yeah, so it's an interesting thing. So I'm not at all from this industry, right? I'm a computer geek, uh, mostly a network dude. So if you use Verizon as an example, uh, there's a 95% chance it goes over a backhaul that I did. I had one of the world's first uh, terabit routers sitting in my garage for five years. But uh, when my daughter was one, we just moved her into her own bedroom. And uh, she would wake up in the middle of the night crying. I was trying to figure out what's going on. And we found out it's because the temperature in her room was dropping about 10 degrees at night. Right? So she would be very extremely uncomfortable and, and get up. So as a self-respecting engineer, I, I wanted to fix the problem. So I quit my job. And here we are, we're chatting. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, fill, fill in some more of those details. So, how did you go from, say, you know, fixing the air in your house to the commercial buildings industry, and what right. made you feel like the, you know, the controls market in this industry was an opportunity for a startup?
1: I mean, I really started to fix my own personal problems. So, when we originally started, we were really looking at uh, the company called Keen Went and Ecohome. They started making this way after us. But we st- I started a company called Santulit, which really made these motorized dampers that you could put into each room in a house to control, to turn on and off the airflow in there, right? So it's kind of primitive zoning, but it's at the terminal side. What it's doing is instead of going hand, putting a damper in the ductwork, you're really using the register to control it automatically. And as we progressed through that, we actually went to a pretty late stage. We were in talks with GE to produce it and Best Buy to distribute the stuff we found that there was basically about 25 different SKUs, the units that you sell that we would have to create because the registers come in so many different sizes in in the residences in the US, right? And because of that, I mean, it was from a logistical perspective, very expensive proposition. So we abandoned that piece uh, because it required too much shelf space. But the idea as part of that journey, I mean, I found that if it was an issue in residences, it was a bigger issue in commercial buildings. And I was a little bit surprised by that. I mean, with due reverence to Johnson Controls, I go into the headquarters, they have the steam powered zone control systems going back 150 years, right? But the industry really hasn't progressed that much in the last couple of decades, right? Even what we see now, the DDC controllers, and the backnet pieces really came in the mid 90s. So we haven't really caught on to the true IoT revolution. A lot of companies are claiming their IoT, but IoT is more than just saying that we're connected to the internet, right? IoT is really about being current, being over the air upgrades and just taking this connectivity ubiquitously as, as granted, which is not necessarily the case in the industry, right? So when I came in from the telecom side, I was a little bit surprised that This is an industry which, I mean, controls a large amount of energy. I mean, the fourth largest emitter of GHG gases is our buildings, right? And all of a sudden we have technology which is very outdated. And I primarily think it's it's because most of the folks come from the mechanical side and not necessarily from the IT side. So most of the standards are not necessarily have caught up with the same pace that we've seen in consumer electronics as an example. So for me, this was an opportunity The commercial buildings presented more standardization. The dampers are more accessible. You have right the more commonly configured sizes. You don't have to stock them. They're also available more easily. So we actually shut down the old company, Santolet, and I recreated this new company 75F specifically focused on commercial buildings.
0: I got it. And in what year was that that 75F started?
1: 2012 is when we started. And <laughs> I was primarily originally focused on the light commercial buildings. So I was thinking of the same thing. Residentials, now let's go into smaller buildings under 10,000 square feet. People can buy a solution from a distributor. And essentially, once you've got that, they can go put it in themselves. So that was the whole genesis that let's keep it relatively simple for smaller buildings. Things have evolved over the last few years though, right? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you, you, you start seeing these cracks in what's out there. And you keep wondering like why it's not been addressed. And I do believe that the business case, I think you've discussed about it as well, that it's a question of how are people incentivized to make money, right? right? How, the, how the channel has grown over the years, right? So that there's a technical issue, but there's also a business issue as well. Big time. All right. And if you're not from the industry, then you're not encumbered by either. You don't have to support legacy customers, and you're not necessarily beholden to say that, hey, we have to serve the same channel that is going to market. So you go to market could be a little bit different. And I think we brought that fresh approach, being outsiders and not necessarily knowing what we were doing.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. Cool, so I wanna just hit on a couple of these. I mean, you've mentioned a lot of these differentiators already. So. Maybe just take us through like why you decided to create a full stack. So you recognize this is an issue, but you're actually creating sensors, controllers, controller right. software, cloud software, the whole gamut. So why'd you decide to do that?
1: The primary reason is like, I look at the controls as kind of like the computing industry back in the seventies. Right back then when you bought an Apple one, you brought it home, you sorted it together and then you learn programming in basic to solve your own problems. Right? And today it's inconceivable to not walk into a mall and you want to buy an iPhone in three minutes. Of course, you can't walk into a mall these days without wearing a face mask, but that's a <laughs> <if you> can, <laughs> if whole you separate story. Talk. <laughs> so this is a different story, right? And but if it ever takes you five minutes, you're probably screaming bloody murder. It's like ah, this uh-huh. thing is bad, right? But it's kind of weird in the controls industry, we still accept that that system integration and taking a product from Schneider and then taking another sensor from ACI and then tying them together through custom code is acceptable right right and and that to me is kind of weird it's part of it yes standards exist for interoperability but they also make it harder that nothing works out of the box Right. And if you look at it, I mean, the standards, I believe don't necessarily need to exist at a device level, really, if you want to have these days, I mean, the system should work out of the box. I mean, you don't really care how what standard your iPhone camera uses to communicate with the rest of the processor. What right. you do care is about the f- base level functionality and like how does it interact like is the file system which is supported is the photo, a JPEG or a PNG, which can be exported out of the unit. Right. So if we accept that kind of modularity, I mean, if we accept that that is a black box, then that really allows us things to be more efficient. Not everything needs to be interoperable at every stage. Is how I look at it.
0: Okay.
1: Right. So our take was that all right, let's make sure that instead of saying that the humidity sensor itself needs to talk backnet and go right to a controller. Let's make sure that the humidity sensor and the temperature sensor and the volatile organic compounds and the CO2 sensors, let's not even make them optional. Right? right? Let's put in all of these sensors out of the box and because the hardware has grown, in all honesty, to be super reliable and cheap. Right? We ended up using the same sensors when I started originally on the on the residential side. I mean we used the fluke temperature sensors were about $350 to get a reference quality fluke sensor. We have the same sensor in every one of our rooms now, Wow! right? So overall, if you look at just how, and it's part of the mobile revolution, right? I'm not taking credit for it. What I'm saying is that, I mean, the consumer electronics have really driven the mobile revolution has driven such good standards in terms of sensors and overall technology that what we really need to do is keep pace and take advantage of that. And that's what we're doing. We're packing all of these sensors, packing in, all of this functionality out of the box, right? And the second piece that we wanted to do is we wanted to have that instead of having a dedicated application-specific controller, that you have one controller that takes on different personalities depending on what equipment you're connected to. So it's kind of like your iPhone is one box. It's got all the sensors, got all the functionality back baked in. Depending on what app you're using, you end up having a different profile, right?
0: Totally, so yeah.
1: Because the value is in not necessarily going and integrating and putting these things in one at a time. So it's not unique in terms of what the industry is doing in the consumer side, right? We accept this in our phones. We accept this in our cars. We've just not somehow got it in our HVAC and our buildings yet. Right? We we look at the totally integrated scenario. Nobody talks about is like, hey, is my car talking backnet to the next car? (laughs)
0: Uh, I agree. Yeah, so it sounds like also one of the benefits of it being full stack is it's also super easy to install. All right. I mean, like you kind of hinted at that with, that, with the iPhone example, but it can be very quick, right? And that, I think that's one of the things you guys were going for initially too, right?
1: Right. You spot on with that. Right. I mean, that was the whole idea of, that we wanted to make it very easy. But back to my hoops, I was really thinking that, like, why, why. Did this control solution in our home not work? And it's primarily because we made it over complicated. We've got all these pieces to tinker around. We're not looking at it as a solution. We're really looking at it small pieces that needed to be brought together. So we had this paradigm of, we did a project in an elementary school and uh, we asked the kids who were eight and nine years old to go put in our system ourselves, right? So the idea is that, so we always have this thing. Uh, I mean, our System's gone, in all honesty, a little bit more complex now. We're doing much larger buildings. We're doing a million square feet sometimes, right? But maybe the same students could do it now, right? (laughs) A little bit older, 10 and 12-year-old kids could do it now. But at that point, it was revolutionary that you could go put in a control solution that the kids who had no training at all could go put it in. Mm -hmm. And we've kind of kept it as part of what we look at when we add features is, like, does it increase the complexity and the debt in terms of cognitive burden on the person who's installing it, right? Because you can give all of these options, but if you the more options you add, the harder it becomes to actually use, right? right? So like your grandmother, is pretty hard for them to pick up an iPhone these days and use it out of the box, right? It, it works out of the box, but if you ever went to settings and tried to configure a thing, I think it's a little bit more complex than the initial system, right? Yeah. So, so we have been pretty mindful about that is like how do you hide all of that complexity and make it so that the machines can do that right so i think we were talking about descript right all the things that you can do with Descript. script i mean that's absolutely amazing to try to do that by hand would be nuts right and yet the compute power is available it's abundantly available and all you got to do is harness it right right, right. Yeah, cool so, so that's what we did is like let's harness the technology curve very aggressively. Because the way I look at it is like purely from an energy efficiency perspective, in terms of the CO2 emissions, if you look at where we are, we are not our CO2 levels and the GHG is not rising linearly. It's rising exponentially, right? Right. And so the only thing that I know of that we can actually use, the only other thing the contractor is, is Moore's law, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Our compute power is the only other thing which is non-linear that I know of in terms of technology. So we got to be very, very aggressive in making sure that we are always keeping ahead and keeping track where technology is, right? And making sure that we have very aggressive price points
0: for compute. Totally. So since we just talked about plug and play, I also wanted to talk about small buildings. And so it sounds like you guys are, you started with small buildings and... Mm -hmm. Now you're progressing into, you know, bigger and bigger buildings, um, as the company expands, but can you talk a little bit about the opportunity with small buildings? I mean, I don't know a whole lot about it. I spent most of my career with, you know, big, 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 big buildings and campuses, but the way I understand it is like, there's a huge opportunity for automation in smaller commercial buildings, medium-sized commercial buildings across the country, across the world. So what are you guys seeing there?
1: You're right. I mean, 90% of the buildings are under 200,000 square feet. Right. So there's a relatively large number of buildings in that stock. We have traditionally looked at the buildings, which are obviously much smaller. Right. Because we can go in as a retrofit, we are much easier to put in. And what we're trying to do is make it more accessible so that people who didn't think that they had a cost effective solution And out of those buildings, I mean, most of them don't have BMSs. And the primary reason is because they're too complex and too expensive, right? So we were really looking at these smaller buildings and saying that's the sweet spot that we really want to address. What we did find is that buildings under 10,000 square feet, which I thought would be the primary market to begin with. right? Those folks are not as concerned about actually having temperature control or about energy because the numbers are too small, right? So the sweet spot, I think, is really somewhere between 20,000 square feet to about 200, 250,000 square feet, beyond which I think controls are kind of accepted. irrespective, yeah. right? But the, the sweet spot is really, can you go address that? And that's kind of an important, very important segment for us, specifically now given where we are with the COVID situation, right? And where the CDC and ashri guidelines are, right? So, yeah. so we are going back to a lot of not only our customers, but new customers, churches, schools, right, our business manufacturing facilities, which are specifically working 24 seven, as an example, right, light manufacturing. So we're going mm-hmm. back to them and making sure that their workplaces are safer, given where we are. So specifically we introduced something called epidemic mode, which implements mm-hmm. the CDC and ASHRAE guidelines. All right. so that's a very important segment, spot on.
0: Totally. And it sounds like, you know, before they might not have any any automation at all and you're going in and saying basically hey this is an opportunity to start controlling measuring measuring your ventilation right Um, and making sure that you have enough cool so before we get into epidemic mode, i do want to hit that next but i think like your platform enables epidemic mode because you're able to push sequence updates to controllers and i think that's a huge differentiator you know compared to the old way to do controls So can you talk a little bit about why you did that and how that works? Again, I do believe
1: in the future, this is what we will see, right? I mean, we take it for granted that your phone is gonna keep updating. Yeah. Right, and now you have the cars which keep updating. So, So why not your HVAC system, right? And so even day one, I mean, that's what we started with over the air firmware upgrades and also our central control unit, which actually runs the algorithms holistically for the building. So those that keeps updating regularly and in fact it keeps updating both from the sequence of operations but also on a daily basis it actually gets updated in terms of the tuners because we create a ml model so we look at the weather and we look at the past history and we figure out what's going to be the optimum tune points set points for making the building work right and these are not just temperature we don't change temperatures temperature set points because i think that's kind of a <laughs> I have another beef with this, right? I I don't understand. (laughs) I think it's a a kludge to try to change set points to get your controllers to do something different. (laughs) Totally. Uh, Right, and it's primarily because I think that the controllers are locked in terms of the sequences that they have. So the only option normally available is like, how do you fool them into doing something different? and and that's really hard science in my opinion like not a hats off to companies who are trying to fix that because every manufacturer every deployment has a different understanding of what the controller should be doing anyway right right so now you have lots of different variances that you really have to account for in your ml models which is why i don't think machine learning and tweaking has truly taken off hmm. because every building is an exception Right. And ML only works if you can tune the model and if you can train the model. Right. So we decided that we want to standardize this. So the idea is that out of the box. I mean, we use like true software processes and test harnesses to make sure that it's not just the software which is working, but the sequence of operations are doing what they should. Right. So unless you have regression tested this, the point of like continuous commissioning is to me so weird. right because i mean that should be a given the fact that we have to go back and recommission buildings makes no sense at all
0: right Right?
1: it should work out of the box that this stuff should self-tune i mean that's the whole point if we look at our apps if we look at where the world is with like we actually have continuous integration and continuous deployment things right in terms of microservices and how we update the web as an example right and none of those things have somehow carried over to this domain But from my perspective, where I came from, I mean, that was a given. That things work, they always keep changing, and you push them out. As sequences get better, technology gets, our understanding gets better, you keep on pushing these updates out. And that's what we really did over the air upgrades. As I said, not just for our central unit, which is running Android, the gateway, but even for each of the edge devices themselves.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, just so I'm, I'm learning here too, how does the so if you think about like a machine learning product that is tweaking set points how how does your machine learning work differently than that
1: right the biggest difference is our machine learning is really looking at loads in the building okay so it doesn't have to keep changing set points what it does is it we have a concept of what we call tuners tuners are things which can affect the functioning of an algorithm as an example we have a bias towards saying that hey If you already have an ml model and you know that it's going to be sunny then your load in the building is going to shift more Mm -hmm. right and it already knows that from the weather forecast model but it doesn't actually so it's really saying that the load is shifting by 2 p.m the load is going to be 30 percent more in this part of the building what it doesn't have to do is like the set points don't have to be changed because that's really a hint to the system that you're going to start putting more air before the set points have to be tweaked. Right. Right. The problem is that everyone's using proportional integral systems, right. right? And because you're using PI controls, what you're doing is you're trying to use the delta T in between the set point and the current temperature to try to fool the system to get it to do something else. Whereas the true Problem is really that you've got an increased load coming down. You should really be conditioning beforehand. There's no reason that you really need to be trying to tell the PI loop and fool it to do anything different. Right? So I'll look at the PI loops and stuff. Those are really for more reactive for course correction in tweaking. But if you already know that the load is going to be more in a part of the building, let's just open up the dampers predictively, proactively. Okay.
0: Got if it's it. going to be
1: a cloudy day then you really know that the load is going to be more uniform it's occluded so that there's not going to be as much directionality to the load so that's one piece right you can use things like uh, even things like when do you turn on for preconditioning right I mean you already know that based on what the current temperatures are and where the outside temperatures are and so you know what your cooling rate or your heating rate should be and you know the Delta T in the temperature and set points so don't change the set point let's just to figure out the, the right way of doing it
0: right yeah and i've talked about in the last couple essays i've written about this there's like i think everyone that at least re- reads nexus is like okay we agree that the existing bas paradigm is broken right okay oh. now there's two solutions to that in my opinion there's the overlay which i, I think we we're describing mm-hmm. the overlay and okay. then there's the the throw it out the window build it from scratch <laughs> approach which I, I put you guys in that throw it sure. out the window build it from scratch approach and i think what we're highlighting here is like two major differences so i just want to kind of restate it to you cuz i'm i'm learning this out loud but the overlay approach would say okay i have all these pid loops that are operating based off of set points and mm-hmm. the only thing i can do in my overlay is just start overriding set points right whereas right. what you're saying is no actually we can if we're building it from scratch we can actually just take that PID loop, sort of, not totally out of the equation, but we can start um, operating the system directly, essentially. Yeah. And
1: you're spot on, right? And and you do it holistically. I mean, that's the the biggest difference that I look at is, the current VA systems are the tail wagging the dog, right? It's like your PI loop is typically running in your room and it's really controlling the VAV damper opening, as an example, right? Mm -hmm. So your communication back to your actual bas is typically by duct static pressure right yeah. no one is actually saying what should be happening in all the s- zones which are being served by an ahu you've not figured out what the total load is you don't know which part of the building really requires a load all you're doing is you're using duct static pressure as some kind of a mechanism of figuring out yes there is more required load in some part right i think the closest we've come to is now with the with GPC 36, the Ashley mm-hmm. standard right, advanced sequences for HR operations. I mean, what they started doing is sending some feedback back in terms of trim and reset, right. uh, trim and respond. And uh, that's a, a mechanism that is a, in some ways a coarse PI loop mechanism The requests are the equivalent of showing some load in, in the terminal units. Right. right? But uh, I mean, there are far more interactive far more real-time systems available that we have implemented we also implement gpc 36 by the way right because some engineers really want the assurance that is a very well-defined mechanism which is well known and so we implement gpc 36 and we we've committed to the fact that as gpc 36 evolves we will keep updating our sequences and more importantly i mean we do reference quality gpc 36 So it's like using software techniques crew test harness stuff, which does regression, and uh, And so we run it through the whole shebang. So you don't really have to commission it. It works out of the box, Same totally, same, uh, totally right. But the key is that, I mean, from our perspective, uh, GPC 36 is, is the lowest level of, I think, current control solution that I would actually consider acceptable.
0: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, I mean, let's just pause on GPC 36 real quick. So ASHRAE is coming out with these new sequences and ASHRAE is saying these are the top sequences, right? So right. in the old controls paradigm, I just want to kind of lay this out for people that are new to this topic. The old control paradigm is that every single building that's been programmed in the past, right, now someone has to physically go there and say, okay, let's upgrade these new control sequences. And right basically program them by hand and what you guys are saying is no i mean every building that's ever had 75f installed on it now can get these control sequences automatically just like the the tesla that everybody wants right it's it's getting control sequences essentially automatically pushed to them so it's just like this huge upgrade for the whole industry if all controls companies did it like that cool all right So one of those newer sequences, right, is what you guys have kind of used to respond to the pandemic, which is epidemic mode. So first, I wanna kind of get your take as uh, a leader in our industry, kind of where you see the industry being at right now. So it's, it's middle of July, 2020 someone's listening to this five years from now, but we're kind of still in the middle of this pandemic. There could be a second wave. It does certainly seems like there's a second wave coming. So how how are you feeling about the state of the the buildings industry and the smart buildings industry specifically?
1: It's a loaded question. I I think there's gonna be some winners and losers, right? I think the existing building stock is not gonna be utilized the way it was before. I think this change that we are seeing of working from home at least partially, is is irreversible. We've kind of accepted it. So the two things which are going to be at look at is like building owners, and we've talked to a bunch of them, right? Real estate folks should be really worried, and they are, right? Because I don't think the tenants at this point, we're laying it down to the second wave, but it's not just the second wave. I think this is going to be a long-term proposition. The same thing with with air travel, right? We're doing it now as an immediate reaction, but I think even long-term, the acceptance of digital communication is just gonna be so much higher. I don't think believe that we're gonna go back to that same way anytime soon. Definitely not in the five years that we were talking about, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. Right. but yeah. so if that's the case, I mean, what you really wanna do is like figure out like how do you make buildings safer, right? I also think this is an opportunity to make buildings more adaptable because mm-hmm. this is just one thing. So the buildings that, As an example that had the 75 web system i mean it's seamless for them to get these updates right right but it's not just us i look at it as like if you want to change use the right technology so that you can keep on harnessing change right that you can be adaptable whether it's epidemic mode now or it's a better energy saving sequences later on Mm -hmm. So what we are doing is we're going back to a lot of these buildings we're talking about, the 20,000 square feet to 200,000 square feet, and, and saying, hey, folks, like, how can we actually help you make your buildings adaptable? How can we make them more healthier now? right? And, and at some point when we have a vaccine and things go back to normal and more people are coming back, can you actually go back and start using modes which are more energy efficient? Right. Because there is obviously a cost associated with any of these modes that we're talking about, which are talking about enhanced ventilation, as an example, to dilute the load, the viral load in a building. Right. Right. And the flip side of which is, I think we're going to come out of this and people are going to say that it's not just the viral load, but it's also there's going to be enhanced awareness in terms of the indoor air quality in general. Right. We've been talking about it for a number of years but I don't think we have actually truly taken steps towards that. So now we can come back and it's like, there's going to be more, just an overall awareness is going to be much higher in terms of IAQ and healthier buildings and and being more adaptable and intelligent. And and that's one part of the message that the building owners that we're talking to understand that, like they want to say that, Hey, our building, our building stock is the healthier one is what they call it. A clean asset is how they look at it. Hmm. It used to be the clean asset term was used primarily from an energy efficiency perspective. But now you're looking at it from a well-being as a healthy building standard.
0: Right. OK, cool. Yeah, totally. So let's let's nerd out on epidemic mode real quick. <laughs> so I've been putting in the newsletter uh, each week. I've been kind of saying, like, here's the best articles I've seen on the pandemic. You know, so far, here's some good uh-huh. ones that if people are looking to keep up with it. And what I haven't seen really at all. I mean, I've been saying this is like, everyone's talking about more ventilation. No one's talking about the impact on the energy consumption. And I I watched your your webcast from last week. So I I learned a lot about it, but I want to hear like what, where you guys are coming from in terms of this epidemic mode. And again, it sounds like it's a control sequence that you're able to push out and let operators decide whether they want to turn it on or turn it off, but what does it actually do and and what what are the the benefits of it?
1: Right. So back to where the CDC and ASHRAE guidelines are, what they're recommending right now is that you run your systems 24 seven and you run them with increased amounts of outside air, right?
0: Which as an energy engineer, I've been undoing that for (laughs) my entire career, right? So it was just like, ah, wait, wait, we've been undoing that for so long.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know. Is like let's put them on schedule so right so and and there are reasons behind that And the primary uh, we've talked to with some of the folks on the task force right both in ASHRAE and on the CDC side and the primary reason for that is that in some ways if you think of a current building out a VAS system you only have a concept of occupied or unoccupied there is no concept of saying hey let's have a pre-purge a post-purge or all right let's have a epidemic mode sequence right in there right so there is no state called epidemic over there so mm-hmm. in terms of safety what they've had to do is they've had to bring down the standards to the lowest common denominator got it and it is kind of an interesting thing you go back this thing is more rampant than just this these current cdc gui- guidelines it's actually rampant in everything we do it's rampant in ASHRAE 62.1 which is the mm. IHq piece right It's rampant in even GPC 36. If you look at GPC 36, the original uh, predecessor to that RP 1455, when they were looking at it, they were looking at not just the best control sequences, they were looking at the best control sequences that could be implemented in an existing controller and with people who were at the level of like a master system indicator, not at a rocket scientist kind of level Right, they were trying to figure out like, what can we push out, which can actually practically get consumed.
0: Got it. Right, it Makes perfect sense. I never thought of yeah. it like that before.
1: And those are the constraints of the folks who are making these recommendations because they have to go back and make sure that they apply to everyone. Because if they put in an advanced sequence that people can't comply with, then like, what do you do with that building? Do you throw it out? Do you shut down the building? Mm-hmm. Right. So so they've actually tried to simplify it, dumb it down and said, hey, run the system 24-7, run it at enhanced ventilation, right? As much 100% outside air if, if possible, if not as much as you can. Right. Because there's no epidemic mode, because the system was not rated to run 100% all the time. What you have to do is now figure out what is it, the amount of outside air it can do under extreme design days. Right. Mm-hmm. Most of the days, it perhaps has capacity, but on some days, if you try to get in that enhanced ventilation, the system cannot keep up, right, because it's not adaptable. So that's kind of the where the recommendations were, and so that's the baseline that we took. So it's, it's interesting, we were actually doing a project with NREL as part of the IN2 program, right, so the Innovation Network 2 program, and they were specifically looking at the energy impact and savings of 75F across multiple climate zones and different building types, right? So when the pandemic came around, we looked at the literature and there was absolutely zero literature talking about what's going to be the potential impact of these recommendations that the CDC and ASHRAE are putting out. Mm -hmm. So we actually talked to NREL at that point. So Grant and gang who are leading that project over there and decided, hey, let's divert some of the resources that we're going to look at normal operation and use them specifically for this epidemic mode. Right? So we had a theory, the two things that we wanted to test out is a, from our perspective, you don't need that ventilation all the time. You really only need it when the building is occupied. Second, the other thing was that the reason though the CDC said you want to run it 24 seven is because the concept of a purge means that you can, you cleanse the building with a high amount of outside air. For a short duration and the asteroid sequences at some points talk about the purge pre-purge and the post purge as well right but the cdc did not because they really had to bring it down to the lowest level so we mm-hmm. actually tested these out and we did some pretty interesting experiments uh, obviously uh, no one's detecting the the covid virus itself but what we did is we u- did some experiments in which we use you know we since we've already got volatile organics compound sensors built into the product we actually use meth paint and alcohol as the two substitutes, and we use cotton balls dipped in alcohol. And when you took it out, figured out how long it would take for those cotton balls, the VOC levels to decline. Hmm. Okay. All right. So in normal mode, in a normal AHU operating normally, and the the average hertz was uh, about 50% of capacity, it took about two hours for the VOC levels to decline to baseline. Mm-hmm. When you raise that up to about uh, 60%, 65%, it took about one hour. Now, when you raised it over to 80%, it only took 12 minutes. Oh, wow, okay. And the primary reason is it's because the airflow starts becoming turbulent, right? So your actual ability to extract and entrain the air and extract it is far more efficient, Mm -hmm. right? Which is what, in my opinion, like no one's done these studies before, but we wanted to test it out as like, yes. So if you truly wanted to do this, what you want to do is you want to run the fan at high speed. You want to get a whole lot of outside air for a shorter period of time and get it all cleansed. Totally. Right? So that's what we did. We introduced this concept of a pre-purge and a post-purge. So it's prior to occupancy and after occupancy. And back to your point, you can turn them on and off as simple as just a slider on, on a phone. And the system automatically does that. But while you're doing these purges, at that point, you really don't want that the set points should be maintained. So it's not the same as saying, hey, let's move my schedule earlier. Because right. if you try to maintain set points, then you have a very tight temperature dead band. You're getting in a whole lot of outside air and right. you're really going going to be consuming a huge amount of energy to make that happen, right? So what we said is it's going to be in setback, right? So it's going to be the, the temperature uh, bands are going to be way more relaxed. You get in this air, all you're doing is di- diluting the air inside and purging it out. And then when the purge is complete, then you tighten the temperatures back to set point and you also reduce the amount of outside air that you're getting so the system can maintain those temperatures
0: right? got it okay so that's what about that's during the, occupied the, mode so that's
1: the occupied so during occupied mode you bring down you still get enhanced ventilation but not 100 percent got it right okay. and that enhanced ventilation in our cases is, is tunable it's again using ml but we we normally you set it as a 50 percent as a baseline is what we set right So back to that energy impact study with NREL. So that's the mode that we implemented, and we asked NREL to actually go back and do this validation. And uh, the results are are eye-opening, I think, in terms of the energy impact, as you might imagine, Mm -hmm. right? And that just following the CDC guidelines is gonna be somewhere between three to five times in some cases, in some climate zones, three to five X of what your baseline energy is.
0: And is that total building energy or just HVAC? Energy. Just just the HVAC piece. Yeah, yeah right. Okay. okay. So right. they basically ran three the way I understand it, three Open Studio models. One with normal operation, one with C D C guidelines, and then one with epidemic mode. And what were the average savings for the epidemic mode f- from the CDC?
1: Right. We actually ran it in four. So we ran it in normal mode, we ran it in C D C guidelines, and then we ran it in epidemic mode. And we also have in within epidemic, remember that we have occupancy sensors. Right. So right so we have a concept that uh, which is something that we're seeing that many of our customers are not getting in all the teams all the employees in on the same day so if you have staggered days of occupancy using the occupancy sensors it saves a fair amount of energy as well because you're only trying to condition uh, those parts of the building which are going to be occupied so so when they ran that what we found is that the cdc uh, on average the cdc guidelines are end up about 3x to 2.5 to 3x over the baseline energy usage for the HVAC the epidemic mode in an office scenario was about 30% over the normal mode right the which is about 50% savings over the CDC guidelines which is like significant since now the top line is so large and and if we actually use the epidemic mode with the staggered occupancy we were only about 15% higher than the baseline, which is like exceptionally nominal. So back to your point, the point I was making is that if your buildings are adaptable, now you can make them healthy without necessarily incurring a huge cost as well.
0: Totally. And what are your customers saying about epidemic mode? What are you hearing from from them? What kind of problems is it solving for them?
1: it's solving some problems, it's also highlighting some problems, which I had not anticipated by the way. So, oh really, okay. <laughs> right, so it's solving the problem that obviously you end up, we give this nice decal as the sticker because one of the key things is many of the things that we're doing, we don't know everything about, the, about COVID-19, right, or the coronavirus.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What people are looking for is visible, they're looking for visible signs that you care Right so mm-hmm. one part of it is like we made these large decals which let people know that the air in this building is being purged right so from a confidence perspective i think it, it's been absolutely fantastic for employees and customers and especially some of our retail customers have adopted this and when their people come in to buy into that store they now know that the building is safer right so they've actually seen it's a big differentiator back to the point of like even from a marketing perspective like which store would you want to go to Totally. Right. The healthy store or the not so healthy store. Yeah. Right. So so they've seen those kind of responses. The things that we found out that we didn't necessarily expect is that we keep talking about how bad people maintain equipment sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right. We found out, I mean, the economizers obviously are notorious and we had obviously tracked this in terms of like, is the economizing working or not? Based on mixed air temperatures with our piece what we found was pressure problems we got hadn't that. done as much economizing at such scale right. all the time right so a, a huge amount of positive and negative pressure differences started popping up in many places where you, you ran all the systems at 100% outside air as an example during purge cycles got it yeah right? so, and and it's an interesting thing i mean we keep thinking that for the first time you start recognizing why you need variable capacity fans on the return side as well
0: mm. absolutely um, that's something to watch out for and this is where all of our commissioning agents shout out to all of them. this is where we we don't really need them to be tuning sequences but we do need them to go figure out these issues <laughs> that are popping right, you, right. up <laughs> That is that too. Yeah. cool so there's a couple other issues i think that i'm seeing as you start to increase ventilation it seems like there's going to start to be and you touch on this a little bit, but equipment capacity issues, right? So if someone's out there just opening ventilation dampers 100%, not just pressure, but also, like chillers can't keep up, chilled water coils can't keep up. Once we get around into the winter, there's gonna be a lot of preheat coils that can't keep up, those types of things. So I feel like these dynamic sequences can help find that edge, right, Uh, a lot better. And then with humidity, so we're in the middle of July in the United States, uh, maybe not in Minnesota where you're at, but well, it actually gets pretty humid there in the summer, but managing humidity as well, I feel like is super important, right?
1: right? And that was actually that's something that got highlighted in in the simulations that came out from NREL as well. So looked at two other aspects in addition to the energy piece is like how well is the temperature being regulated? And that I think back to your point that like we actually had to turn down the amount of outside air, which is coming in terms of the CDC models because they're running 24 seven. Right. And it gets really, really cold in some of those places. Uh, So like extreme Minnesota winter was a pretty decent example where the building temperatures were dropping and the system was not able to keep up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So, so that's a, something definitely worth keeping in mind and ditto with humidity as well, specifically with the outside air coming in consistently, uh, it just uh, in Houston two a was extrapped uh, like during a design day, the humidity was almost 70% inside the building, which is,
0: which is getting out there. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, cool. I mean, I'm super excited. I was, I was pumped up watching the the webcast about this. So I'm I'm excited to see where that goes. And I hope people start copying off you, frankly, (laughs) because, because I I think it's, this is a needed upgrade to control sequences.
1: I think that's a good point. Uh, James, I mean, when we did this, even when we talked with NREL, yes, we had our funding, but that's why we wanted to share it with everyone is that these are the results and these are the sequences. So we are actually super crystal clear. So even if anyone else is ever looking for like our sequence of operations, what we've implemented by all means, I mean, we're we're making these public. I think Mm. if uh, medical uh, vaccine makers can collaborate, I think HVAC uh, companies can collaborate as well.
0: (laughs) Exactly, I love it. Yeah. So let's, let's kind of pivot back to the product itself. So, you know, I have talked a couple of times, so I feel like I understand the product pretty well, but let's, let's kind of start with software. You guys, again, had the chance to just throw the existing automation, you know, front end paradigm, just totally out the window. So how have you, like what makes a good software layer and how have you guys approached creating that in the, in the product?
1: I'm glad you're talking about it now then maybe two years earlier. Right? Okay. <laughs> Good. Our understanding has evolved as well, right? So when we started, we were really looking at a small, as a product, right? But about two years ago, as we decided that we we're going to go scale the technology up, we actually made it so that it is exceptionally modular and a true platform, right? So we actually, one of the key things that we did is, it, it's kind of weird. I keep dissing standards like BACnet, but on the other hand, I'm really gung-ho on places like Haystack, and I know you were talking in the last episode on back two to three, right? Actually, two to three and and Haystack. So we have made everything within our product layer now in the software stack as 100% Haystack compliant. So all our apps, all our portals are actually running reference implementations of Haystack apps. We end it. up using the, the same API that we would actually expose to our customers, right? So I'm a big fan of interoperability, but as I said. Not necessarily at, at lower layer level, but at, at the right scale. Mm-hmm. And to me, I think haystack is probably the, the first place where we've actually started getting some standardization around that piece. right So yeah. And especially when Haystack 4 gets c- completely flushed out, or, or whatever Ashray comes out with on the two- to- three committee, I think mm-hmm. that's going to be exceptionally important. So when we designed it, we made it super modular now and so it's completely originally it was just cloud hosted but now we call it completely uh, because some of our customers want it hosted in their own private data centers on mm-hmm. we have some countries which have restrictions in terms of that the data should be stored locally so we call it a hybrid public private cloud so it's completely containerized and dockerized so you can actually deploy it with what's called CI/CD, continuous integration continuous deployment so it's it is as good an architecture from a software perspective as can be Right. And that's because we decided to rearchitect it, as I said, uh, recently. And now it's to the point that, I mean, we really look at like how our smart cities going to scale on a platform like this, because we have some partnership as an example with Singapore Power. They're the world's largest district cooling utility. But what they're doing is they're going and replicating their entire package of how to do district cooling to other countries and other districts, not just Singapore. Right, so they're selling it as a service. As a, and so we are the technology stack on the building automation side for that, right? So whenever there's a new smart city or a smart district which is going to use Singapore power, they're all going to be using 75F technology. So we decided to go back and make sure that the technology would scale to those levels because as we That's go nice. in the future, I mean, the whole concept with this distributed energy resources, as solar and wind become more prevalent, it's no longer going to be the case that the grid is going to scale up to the load. The load is going to have to adapt to the grid, right there. So if that's the case, we really need bi-directional data models which allow massively uh, parallel uh, compute in terms of machine learning, et cetera. So that was the whole genesis behind making sure that we had a semantic model in addition to just storing the data, right? So, So Haystack really fulfilled that
0: totally and anyone who's listened to the last episode knows that this is a a different perspective for someone that's in in the building automation world to design their product with haystack natively basically is what i'm hearing so what makes why did you do that when you're a controls company and why do other controls companies not build like that
1: it's like their legacy right i mean if you already have a database i guess you don't really care but i mean to me it makes a lot of sense i know you come from the energy auditing piece as well right so you probably use skyspark but it's kind of weird to actually connect skyspark to a building which has backnet and then manually map all the data over right and i mean Definitely. it is a huge amount of work and it's like it boggles me it befuddles me why others won't do it natively but i can only think it's because of legacy that's how it's always been done right but yeah we decided to do it natively out of the box. So everything, even our algorithms, when we did RP 55, GPC 36, it's kind of weird. We don't even look at current temperature. We look at points. So we actually make a call to say the haystack tags, which would actually allow you to say point, his current Mm. zone, right? So it's really a call every time we use, there's no variable names in all of our algorithms. So we are like hardcore truly stack.
0: native haystack. That's amazing. A truly
1: native haystack. I mean, if you look at our analytics, our widgets, which go and display all of the data, every one of them is a true haystack call.
0: Wow. Yeah, I'm sure Brian Frank and the guys that started that are pumped about that. So cool. So a couple of different questions about the software. First is, you know, you mentioned SkySpark, for instance. Are you guys in your front end, I guess, to use an analogous term to a traditional building automation system, are you guys adding in analytical capabilities like fault detection diagnostics and that type of thing? And and how are you thinking about that? Uh, Absolutely.
1: So, I mean, all the analytics are built in. The slight difference, I think, versus SkySpark is that SkySpark allows those rules to be set or sparks, which get uh, right, and they're highly customizable. We have tried to do that out of the box, right? I think we have the luxury in our case mm-hmm. that we already know what those FDD pieces are going to be. So like with GPC 36, of course, they have their own concept of what the FDD should be. And that's already built into that product. And what's kind of cool is that every one of, again, back, I, I go giddy over the so kudos to Brian, as you said, and gang, but I mean, even all our analytics and FDDs are all making Haystack calls
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right so so it becomes that allows you to scale right that allows you to specifically if you have equipment which is being replicated right you don't have to do that for each and every point now you just have to do it for the, the tags that match that value and i mean that to me is is the true value like if you go shoe shopping or if you go to best buy we use tags all the time right you go search for tv then you go search for 40 to 50 inch, you're searching for a price point between $400 to $700. And if you look at what, if you go to their site, that's what they do. They really put those tags right at the top as a filter me- filtering mechanism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right, yeah. and that to me is the beauty of what Haystack has really done. And, and we really took it to heart as like, go all the way in and make sure that every algorithm, every FDD, even our customized code sequences, we call it IFTT, like if this, then that logic uses the same concept. It's like, if these tags are this value, then do this command.
0: Got it. So how how do you guys deal with, you mentioned sort of waiting on Haystack 4, how do you guys deal with the sort of limitations to the data model as it exists today?
1: Yeah, I think we've made our own customized extensions for the time being, right? Mm-hmm. I think the primary shortcoming that we found was that in the reference model that it always goes and references one site or one equip and it's not bi-directional. So those are some of the limitations that we have in Haystack 3. So we added more references, which are 75F custom, not just the tags, but more references to like floor or a zone, which are constructs, which are not as well defined in Haystack 3 in terms of the reference models.
0: Got it. Yeah, and I'm assuming you can, whenever the standard gets updated, you guys can just update your model and push updates out.
1: Yeah, that's, that's the plan. Cool.
0: Okay. You mentioned the platform aspect of it too. So thinking there's, you know, a thousand different acronyms, but if you think about all the end uses in the building, they have the digital twin platforms coming out where you're pulling in HVAC and lighting and access control and elevators and everything down the line. So how are you guys viewing how 75f connects with those type of platforms or are you viewing 75f as that type of platform or is it both <laughs> i think
1: it's the last uh, it's it's both right okay so obviously we're talking about much larger buildings right class a buildings so so folks have already implemented what we call a true building intelligence system or ibs as sometimes they call it right so for those folks i mean we would feed be the authoritative reference source for the HVAC lighting and space management. So those are, that's how we look at it. Those are the three key parameters that we look at. We do good on lighting on the HVAC size and also space management, figuring out which parts are being utilized. Mm -hmm. And for folks who are looking for other data sources to come in, I mean, we welcome it. I mean, we have a very scalable database model, whether it's just for a building or even for OEMs, right? So the whole piece was that we were originally quite monolithic in terms of a tech stack, but we just launched this in April now. It's a new Renatus version, we call it, and with Athena as as our cloud, but it's highly modular, which is what allows the public-private deployments. It also allows for us to work with OEMs who perhaps want just the ML layer or they want the database layer, right? Or they want just, if you want GPC 36, right? Mm -hmm. If if there's OEMs out there who don't want to run their own version of GPC thirty six. All they really care about is if they're haystack compliant, we'll you can just take our algorithms and, and put it on there. Right? Okay. And our whole idea was that it's not just GPC thirty six. We want to do the converse as well. If someone's come up with a better way of doing GPC thirty six or their own custom way of sequences, right? It's a hundred percent compliant haystack layer underneath on the hardware side.
0: Mm.
1: All you gotta do is write an algorithm which uses Haystack. Got it. Right. Okay. It, it's as easy as that.
0: OK, yeah. So do I hear you correctly that those three verticals, HVAC lighting, space management, are, are you guys planning on expanding beyond that? Or could you pull in data from other verticals? Um, or is that kind of where you're headed? You don't have to tell me this, by the way. if <laughs> This is roadmap no. stuff. <laughs>
1: It's not. It's public roadmap stuff. We're definitely pulling okay. in data from other places as well. Right. Okay. So, the whole point is all about API level integration. I mean, this sky's the limit in terms of what we can do over there.
0: Okay. And and would that include like other legacy BASs? Are are you pulling in other hardware to pull into the platform?
1: We will be soon. We have not. We've got some orders, customer deployments. Where we are going to be doing that. What we're really doing is we're using a Backnet to Haystack data pump. Hmm. Okay, right, because that's already commercially available. So rather than us trying to reinvent that whole piece about, so we all just you know I, I keep dissing Backnet, but I mean we are Backnet compliant. So we're very, yeah. we're, we're Backnet server, right, and we've implemented it just because of that interop. If you are in a larger building and you already have a BAS which is Backnet, I mean there's no reason that we should be excluded from that, right? So, so specifically, we go into like a, a large building, which a tenant might actually want to put us in. So you can go put it in for that one tenant, and then you just expose ourselves using the backnet interface to the rest of the building. Okay, right. So that's a that's a possibility. What we have not done is include direct backnet client functionality. So taking in legacy hardware and trying to integrate our, it back, because to me that's a lot of work. It's manual it goes against the ethos of like trying to make this out of the box.
0: Yeah. So, I think what I'm hearing is if say a client has 12 different types of BASs across their portfolio, but then they decide, Hey, in this 75F building we have over here, we really like their software layer. I mean, most traditional mm-hmm. building automation system software layer is poor as we've right. talked about. And I've talked about endlessly over the last few months, but what if they say, okay, we really like 75F software and we wanna deploy that across all of our whole portfolio without replacing all the hardware underneath and all the other buildings. And they wanna do things like standardize their schedules, standardize their set points, standardize their sequences. Is that a direction you guys are headed and can you do that today?
1: Uh, we can't do it natively, but we can with the data pump, right, so if okay. they're on backnet, so you would mm-hmm. have a backnet to Haystack converter. Okay. Which would allow that first layer of mapping and then we would talk haystack api to api to the data pump
0: to the data pump okay and so you could send overrides and whatever you wanted to do exactly yeah okay all right well we got about i don't know a couple of minutes left here so i want to ask about services so how are you guys like going to market today and specifically i'm wondering The BAS service contract is something that I kind of wanted to dig into next for Nexus. And so it's kind of on my mind. And I wonder how you guys are thinking about servicing your hardware and software in a new way.
1: Uh, That's an interesting, I mean, that's part of the whole innovation. So two things that we do is we work with existing control guys or even mechanical contractors to go service their existing customers. We also do work directly with large enterprise customers ourselves directly as well, right? So, but general preferences, if it's one offs, then we would actually go use the same existing service relationship that they have with their service contractor. I mean, we are not here to try to disrupt that piece. What's kind of interesting is, because of the fact that we're all IoT and we have our own NOC for monitoring all of our deployments, what we do is we allow the white labeling of the monitoring service And that's kind of interesting thing, right? So if you're a smaller shop and you don't have a full knock, right, you could actually basically take our, get managed services from us, but put it under your own umbrella. So you would end up getting the mechanical contractor or the service contractor would actually end up saying, here's the service contract to their own customer, but we would be providing it, servicing it in the back end, Right, and what's kind of interesting with that is because we have so much data coming in, I mean, we can actually, type back directly and send out service tickets as well to dispatch mechanical guys if needed. So it's a, an interesting piece in terms of the managed services part, what this allows us to do so that you can be far more proactive, right? Because the knock is running all the time. Wow. So it's truly a network operating center, which is like looking at all the buildings, looking at all the data and all the alerts which are coming in. Okay, okay. Cool. Also, some of our customers, like in some places, it's mandatory to have an engineer on board 24-7 for some critical facilities, right? But they've petitioned cities and counties to get waivers without getting into specific customers that the engineer only needs to be there during the day shift and during the evening and the night shift, it actually gets pushed over to the NOC. So we provide the managing and the observation of making sure that the building, the critical facility is running correctly and in case someone needs to be dispatched we can do that proactively okay cool but one of the things that we've had a fair amount of success with is is oems of equipment okay right so you have the big guys you have the carriers and uh, you have the trains and jci who have their own controls but right? you also have a large number of people who are making HVAC equipment but who don't necessarily have their own controls line And for those, I mean, we have really started becoming an OEM out of the box because now it's a huge differentiator, right? No longer do you actually have to rely on someone else to do that system integration because it's now working out of the box. And so as a package solution, especially for this mid sized buildings that we're talking about under 200,000 square feet, I mean, it's a huge differentiator.
0: Totally, what would be an example of a piece of equipment that you know, you could then just, it comes natively with a 75F controller.
1: Dual cool, swamp coolers, uh, things like AHUs, a lot of customized AHU folks mm. out there, right? Small RTU guys. So we don't do the equipment control, but we provide the building control aspect of it, right? So we won't necessarily go and replace an RTU controller uh, itself, but we would go and interact with that RTU controller and make sure that they have they basically are making it IoT enabled.
0: Okay, so a smaller building that only has, you know, five RTUs and then you'd throw a 75F building controller and now all of a sudden it has all the intelligence that, yeah, okay, cool, I love that. All right, so the only thing we didn't hit was on the hardware layer, so I got a couple more minutes as long as you do, so like what makes a good hardware layer since you guys, the same kind of question as earlier, you guys designing it from scratch. How did you approach that?
1: Biggest thing was like, I mean, all digital, right? Is like no sensor is analog. So you're always, you look for sensors, which are, I mean, it starts truly with the sensors, right? You want to make sure that you get sensors that don't require calibration, that don't drift, right? And so if you start with that technology, I mean, then you're assured that it cuts down not only your calibration in the factory, but also in the field, because that's super expensive stuff. Right. Right. Okay. And so, the second thing that we took on is that like, in my aspect was that, I mean, throw in all the functionality that you think you'll ever need into the hardware right up front. Right? Okay. Don't, don't chintz on it. Don't say, hey, can I save this? I don't know, the small module. And like, we've got BLE, IR blasters, uh, so much other stuff, which is like just, out there and we keep adding new services because it's software upgradable right so let's mm. throw in all of the stuff even if we don't think that we're going to be we know what what we're going to do with it right now Got so, it. And, so that, and that, that includes was
0: different sensors too right yeah
1: absolutely different okay. different sensors as well so and so now we started like in the new generation of hardware we've actually started throwing in dedicated co2 sensors as well right okay. so it's not not just derived but it's like i mean those are Used to be damn expensive, but I mean, yeah. you're saying that it's not even optional, it's like there as part of the product. Every zone, every room, which brings me back. Like originally, I alluded to where 62.1 was. If you go back to where they thought the ventilation rates were, it's purely based on biofluence from human beings, <laughs> right? Back in the mid 90s when there was no sensing technology around that. So, right, I, right. I do believe that at some point we can show asteroid data that with intelligent sensing you perhaps don't need fixed ventilation anymore as an example Mm -hmm. so so the hardware layer in my opinion is a it needs to have all the sensing all all the functionality built in and the second piece it really needs to do is it needs to you want to have a consistent platform you want to have the same hardware rather than having application specific stuff
0: Mm.
1: because in my opinion that brings down your cost because you're doing volumes it allows for more reliability because it's the same product. You're not saying, is CO two sensor optional now? Is this going to be for a water source heat pump, or is this going to be for a heat pump, right? Or is this a fan coil unit, right? I mean, it, I think it changes the supply chain game dramatically, and I think in in 2020, that's where we should be.
0: Got it. Cool. Well, thanks for this conversation. Uh, I learned a ton. So thanks for thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having this. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you're doing what you're doing, James. It's always nice to, to listen. And so I'm looking forward to the next, next episode as well, as you said.
0: Awesome. Well, yeah. we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Take care. Thanks. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, please subscribe at nexus.substack.com. You can find show notes for this conversation there as well. As always, please reach out on LinkedIn with any thoughts on this episode. I'd love to hear from you. Have a great day.